S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 3, Episode 8, starring Miskel Spillman, originally aired on December 17th, 1977. Welcome and happy holidays. It's SNL, and this Saturday night in SNL, we're looking at the December 17th, 1977 episode, hosted by the Anyone Can Host contest winner, Mrs. Miskel Spillman. My name is Keith, with me as always, my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Keith. Happy holidays to you and your family as well. Pleasure to be here. I'll jump right in. Joining us tonight, a a new third chair, a friend to the show, and the winner of our own personal uh, Anyone Can Host contest. Saturday Night Live went one way, we went the other. We've got a young man here, big fan of the show, and uh, has some personal connections to some members of the uh, the hosting gallery. It's a young fella named Daniel. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, I'm Daniel. Glad to be here, Keith. Daniel, you were certainly born long after these episodes. Um, what do you know about Saturday Night Live? I think I just like Saturday Night Live in the fact that I just really like old humor for some weird reason, but originally my father introduced me to Saturday Night Live, and ever since I've been watching it. Very good. Do you have a favorite performer? Either John Belushi or Dan Aykroyd. I think they can be very versatile, but they can also be very bad at some time, so... <laughs> All right, cool. Now, both you fellows, of course, Matt, we covered it uh, two weeks back. Daniel, I know you uh, you heard the episode. Two weeks ago on the Buck Henry episode, we had uh, the five finalists of this contest, and it came down to uh, five very different white people, I guess the best way to put it. Miskel Spillman won. Are you uh, surprised, Matt? I guess not really, because, you know, she gets that sweet old lady vote, uh, which I'm sure was all the rage. And, you know, and nobody else, you know, I, I voted for the, the co-ed, but yeah. uh, I know there were vote, some votes in other directions. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to say I'm not really surprised. No. Yeah, Whether or not yeah. I agree. That's a different question. The answer is no. Not surprised. Were you disappointed? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Daniel, you saw that episode. What do you think of Miskel Spillman being the uh, the big winner? I don't know. I, I feel like I am surprised, but I can't really say why. Yeah, understood. Let me give you some uh, info about Mrs. Spillman. She was the winner of the five, of course. She was born in uh, most sources say Germany, but uh, there's some places that say Indiana as well. She was born in 1897. At the time of the contest and her hosting, she was living in New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, at this point, she was a widowed grandmother. She was legitimately a big fan of the show. And her postcard that she sent in said, I'm 80 years old. I need one more cheap thrill since my doctor told me I only have 25 years left. Spillman goes on to be and is the oldest host until Betty White comes along many years later. Uh, The record is a bit uh, misconstrued at times. Ruth Gordon was actually born earlier, but Spillman was older than Gordon was when she hosted. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm following. Yeah, Gordon was born earlier in the timeline of history, but uh, at the time of their hosting, Mrs. Spillman was like 16 days older than Ruth Gordon was when she hosted. So Spillman won this contest by a huge margin of votes. Yeah, I mean, I was watching. I knew already, so I was definitely colored by, you know, knowing who was going to win, but... Uh, 
based on what I saw that day, it's it's definitely not a shock that uh, that she won this one. She was quite charming and funny. Where was she during the war, Miss Spielman? Because <laughs> uh, she would have been quite the healthy adult. Definitely not saying she's a Nazi. <laughs> that's neither here nor there i wish there was a grander presentation of her as the winner yeah there was no voila or and the winner is mm-hmm. there was there was no you know you had a big contest yeah yeah and i actually wonder i don't know if she did or not but you know the promos that they shoot throughout the week and they air on tv i i wonder i don't know if she was if she was doing those, that would have been quite a wet blanket of a reveal. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, it was wet as it is. So it's a historic night, and it's not just because of Spillman, but we've also got Elvis Costello here this uh, tonight. Uh, this, of course, was supposed to be the Sex Pistols. They ran into some visa trouble. Of course, with uh, the Sex Pistols out of the picture and this this young, clean-cut lad coming in, Lauren Michaels has nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> the Sex Pistols would have been so cool. They would have been destructive i'm sure oh that would have been so cool and i mean that's been your example of who they one of their you know main examples of who they should have and it looks like they tried and and it just didn't work out for them yeah you know we'll see how the replacement does absolutely we have a title card how the grinch raped and strangled christmas will not be seen tonight edgy but i did laugh (laughs) no i laughed yes i liked it was funnier than the last one maybe not as funny as the first one so we start with uh belushi and lorraine at the lockers and they're talking about this week's host belushi worries that uh, spillman is going to forget her lines but lorraine says you should be as together as mrs spillman is when you're 80 years old to which Belushi spawns, don't worry, I'll be dead by 30. Yikes. Fuck. Buck Henry comes in and says that Mrs. Spillman's in her dressing room, lying down on the floor, staring at a bowl of fruit and blaring loud music. Belushi says he was just in there, gave her a few tips to relax, and then gave her a joint. Buck and Lorraine are mad. Buck says to John that Belushi joints are so strong that they'd overwhelm even an experienced drug user like himself. Belushi says Buck has less than a minute because they are live from New York, so Belushi gets the... Live from New York this time around. Cold open. I uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought it laid things out really well. Now, Matt, your point, it could have been uh, a much bigger to do. But for what they gave us, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, sure. I liked it, too. I, I still feel like you have such an obvious idea for the cold open. But I guess they probably had to, like, advertise slightly in advance. Like, kind of like you said before. I don't know. Did they have to? where's it gonna leak they don't have the internet yeah i don't know i don't know it it seems like it could have been uh a slam dunk what we got is fine it's fine it was short sweet to the point and buck had the the line of it obviously i don't get it i think this is okay not the best cold open i've ever seen but it was funny at some points not much to say here except that i found it was pretty funny that it went from uh, Mr. Spiel- Spielman looking at fruit bowls to Belushi giving her smokes. <laughs> yeah. We then go to the monologue. Spielman comes out carrying a bowl of fruit. She's accompanied by Buck Henry. Now, he does most of the talking here, and he occasionally tries to uh, relieve Mrs. Spielman of the fruit bowl, but she turns away and won't let him take it. Buck notes that she did win by about 15,000 votes. Now, she's talking as if she's completely stoned, but is appreciative of Belushi visiting her in the dressing room. And she ends with uh, kind of a a bit about how much of a fun week she's had. She alludes to the dope and ends her thing by saying the colors. Wow. A few things about this one. Firstly, it's great that Buck Henry's there with her to walk her through a bit. And they'll do this throughout. They kind of have different people and different sketches kind of being her minder. 
Second, the drugged Belushi stuff makes me, th- it's, I mean, it's, it's funny that he got an 80 year old woman stoned in the storyline, but it also gives them a, a sort of an out to, you know, if, if Mrs. Spillman's performance is awkward as it gets a few times throughout. The other thing too, is I think chronologically, this was before the times whenever you see an old person in, in a movie or a TV show, you're like, oh, when are they going to curse or when are they going to start rapping? This is when old people were still old. So I, I can imagine this was really, really funny at the time. I, I got a good kick out of it, and I thought they couldn't have used uh, Mrs. Spillman any better at this point. Yeah, I felt that this monologue was pretty funny. And like, Buck was pretty funny in the fact that he was just trying to reach the fruit bowl during the whole monologue, but Miss Skull was just like not giving in at all. I really like when Miss Skull was like, wow, the colors. And I found that pretty funny even though I shouldn't get the joke. I'm not with you guys. I thought this was pretty rough. It was (laughs) for like, she's out there. Like, I get it. She's not, you know, it's an old lady. She's not an actor. She's not a comedian. It's literally, I get, let's, let's prove it. Anyone can host, uh, even grandma. But I mean, can anyone host? I, I think they immediately have shown us the answer is no. They've sent her with backup, and they've given her a scant few lines. I know, it's a gag. Okay, it's a gimmick. Anyway, I didn't think she was funny, and uh, I thought this was un- <laughs> this was unfortunate for me to watch. <laughs> we now go to the Meat Wagon Toy Ambulance. It's a commercial, and it starts out, it actually looks exactly like a typical toy racetrack set from the 70s and 80s. Kids are playing with two cars on this uh, homemade racetrack that they made, but then two cars crash into one another and get caught on fire. Now, the real toy that they're advertising here is an ambulance, a quote-unquote meat wagon, that comes in and uh, tends to the victims of these flaming car crashes that happen on other racetracks. The meat wagon comes with a small pry bar, a fire extinguisher, an oxygen mask, and a little body bag. And it has a couple of little figurines who are paramedics who load the living or uh, otherwise uh, drivers into the uh, ambulance. And this is, of course, made by Mainway. I got a good kick out of this. I thought it was pretty funny. It's what uh, a friend of mine once called a toy with consequences. And uh, I actually really enjoyed this. Yeah, I liked this too. It kind of gave me nostalgia I that isn't really nostalgia. What I got a weird kick out of was when they crashed into <sighs> quote-unquote fire, even though it was just like the smallest fire you've ever seen. I feel like the actual... The uh, car, the meat wagon, was a pretty was a pretty funny joke. But yeah, I think this one was really good. How about you, Matt? Good point, uh, Nostalgia. You know, I listened to uh, uh, the music. Uh, that's a whole, a whole genre of music. Nostalgia that's not really nostalgia, like Boards of Canada. And then but we started to listen to all this vaporwave stuff. But I digress. It's a good point. I wasn't alive either, man. And uh, yeah, this, this was funny. Good. Great production values fun, cute, little crazy toys to hit. Yeah, a lot of work went into this one to make it look like an actual racetrack ad. I was really impressed, like the little carpet there and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree. Do they still have, I mean, we used to, these were all over Saturday morning TV when I was a kid. Do they still have these racetrack commercials all over the place? Not all over the place, Keith, but they're still here. We now have the America Date the Self-Conscious Association. Gilda and Murray sit on a couch and they keep sort of checking their breath and uh, checking body odor and seeing if their zippers are up. 
Lorraine hosts this public service announcement, and she throws the bit back to Bill Murray and Gilda as they awkwardly try to make a date for New Year's. Both are stuttering and stammering, and uh, Lorraine says they're uh, two twitching wrecks. Lorraine says she herself used to be self-conscious, but she licked it except for when there's a lot of people watching her. And she kind of gets a little self-conscious there for a minute, but she does bounce back. Lorraine then introduces John Belushi as Charlie, who represents the people who are so obnoxious that they can only date the self-conscious. Because only the self-conscious can't notice how obnoxious they are. Now, Charlie is dressed very loudly and he has a joy buzzer and he just doesn't shut up. Lorraine says the only remedy for obnoxiousness is folks who are brutally tactless. The brutally tactless didn't send anyone to the PSA because they they were quite blunt and said that it was a stupid idea. Dan then appears as a member of the extremely stupid people when he tells the audience to take him out for New Year's today. A lot of good characterizations in this. Um, it wasn't out of the park, but I did laugh quite a bit at this. I thought Lorraine was fantastic. I found the buzzer on his hand. I forget what it's called. I think it was pretty funny in the fact that he was just like, he was go meh, and then go wah, 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 wah. Well, I was really looking forward to this. Kate, when, we, when it started, I thought Bill and uh, Gilda were so good. And I thought it was interesting that Lorraine is in this host role, uh, not Jane, but I, I would come to realize once Belushi got involved that Jane was probably like, fuck this. But anyway, Bill and Gilda did so well. And I was like, oh my God, these are such good characters. And I kind of thought they'd be in the sketch more because everything after i thought was a complete disaster that belushi is an obnoxious asshole and like yeah i get it you're an obnoxious asshole like you know probably this was his easiest role ever probably dan doing the, the, the stupid guy with like the mentally handicapped voice yeah, you could not do that today that was pretty like no you, you can't say somebody is stupid and then do the the hard R mm. voice. Uh, nope. Nope. So I, I really liked it for a, like a minute when Bill and uh, Gilda were doing those cool characters. And I thought everything else was really awful. Well, as the season goes on, we're going to see a bit more, a lot more awkwardness from, from Bill and Gilda. But, uh, but yeah, I, I should have mentioned too, they were great as well. Um, not just Lorraine, but yeah, it started strong. I think you're right, Matt. And it kind of, kind of dipped a little. We now have a Chiron. This woman is a runaway elf. We now go to Gift of the Magi. So Jane intros it. She's sitting in front of a tree at home base with Miskel Spillman with her. Miskel says Gift of the Magi is one of her favorites. It's the old O. Henry short story where uh, the, there's a husband and a wife and they he's not working and out of money. She has beautiful, luxurious hair. Uh, she's dying and they both sell things very important to get money to give gifts to each other. In this case, Jane is narrating the story as it's performed by Gilda and John, who are playing Helen and Robert. Lorraine and Dan are in there as well as a doctor and nurse. So they do a bit of the story. They flip back to Jane and Spillman, where Jane goes on with the narration, and Spillman makes little quips about the story. This one, though, it, it ends with Belushi choking Gilda in the bed. There was some funny bits in this. I thought Jane was excellent. Gilda and Belushi, I thought, did good performances, but again, it ends with Belushi beating up Gilda, and Spillman's random little quips uh, made me laugh as well. Uh, but this was, I mean, I got some, I enjoyed this. It was definitely not knocking it out of the park for me, though. Um, yeah, but I mean, they had fun with it. I didn't really like this one. It, it just dragged on too much for me. Miss School did way better than I thought she would in this one. She, It looked like she was, like, on the urge to cry. I didn't really like the weird turn of violence at the end. It was just... 
it was just totally uncalled for and wasn't really necessary, to be honest. I get what they were going for, uh, but again, this is, uh, in my opinion, a disaster. You have Jane out there uh, carrying this little old lady and like trying to keep her on track. Uh, and, she, you know, little old lady got some bad timing, Miss Spielman, and she needed to be carried. Not anyone can host. Yeah, you go do your cute little story with John and Gilda. And, like, this is not the first time we've uh, seen John Belushi pretend to beat up a woman on this show. Come on. So we go to a Chiron. This woman is very famous somewhere. We now go to Elvis Costello. London-born, hot up and coming, kind of transcends uh, some some genres as well. But uh, I, I don't know. I kind of think he sits right on that line between new wave and punk. What I really like about Elvis Costello, I'm not a huge, huge fan, but over the years, having heard a lot of his work, always love his lyrics. Tonight, he does Watching the Detectives. It was uh, released as a single. It didn't get, a, it didn't get on a full album until a few years afterwards. Came out as a single in October of 77 in the UK, November in 77 in the US. Really, this was his first single, and uh, this was the song that kind of brought him to the uh, consciousness of, of, of the world. I enjoyed this song very much. I enjoyed the performance. This was great, but I, I think what I have to say is far less important. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Matthew, first off, this is much closer to what you've been asking for. It's, let's address, of course, I was into the idea that the Sex Pistols were going to be here. And until you broke my heart during the credits of our last episode, I thought they were going to be. I didn't know they didn't show up. But of course, I knew about this Elvis Costello appearance. This is a great replacement. You're right. It's uh, it's a little new wave. It's a little punk. This is a hot sound. The police are kind of playing with this reggae sound around this time, too. Mm -hmm. This is... This is a hot young act. I dig the song. Daniel, you don't have much experience listening to Elvis Costello or even maybe this type of music from, from the time. What did you think of this one? I really liked Elvis Costello. I really liked the song that he did, Watching the Detectives. I feel like it was deserved for him to be, this is like the song for him to be on the spotlight. I also really like in the background, I really like the, like the garage band vibe that this um, background gave off. I, re I, I really liked this. Good call on that background vibe. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you there. I'm just saying that, uh, Daniel, uh, as I'm sure a fan of this show and our show, of course, so many musical acts have been like sad married dad on a saturday night vibe like I'm just miserable man this is a shot in the arm that it needed it's got that hot garage band vibe you know it's it's not pretentious in any way well dana actually that brings up a good point i know you've you've watched uh, a lot of episodes from the period you've heard some of our episodes did elvis costello stand out from you for you as a uh, as an interesting actor uh, compared to some of the other ones that you, uh, you've seen yeah, it's definitely it's definitely somebody I would uh, want to listen to more. Nice weekend update teaser. We have uh, Betty Ford with a man dressed as a cat. I probably from no, I don't know if it would have been from the cast of Cats. Uh, Jane reports the man as Gerald Ford. Ms. Magazine, the cover of Ms. Magazine for that month has a pregnant Jimmy Carter. Carter says he hasn't been pregnant since Amy was born ten years before. Jane has a phone line to the White House. They patch her into a meeting between Menachem Begin and Jimmy Carter. Carter gushes over how great Dan Aykroyd is and asks for tickets to the show. 
Jane asks for an update on his ta- on Carter's talks with Bagan, but uh, Carter says Bagan can't speak because he's indisposed, implying that he went to the bathroom. The camera pulls out to realize. Camera pulls out to reveal that it was Dan all along voicing Jimmy Carter. Garrett Morris gives a point of view about white oppression and how proud he is of the strides black people have made. He feels, however, that black people are being wronged because of another injustice that occurred on the basketball court, where a black player was accused of hitting a white player. And they show a clip from a Lakers-Houston uh, Rockets game, I believe, where a uh, black player Kermit Washington punches out uh, Rudy Tomjanovich. Who, uh, Garrett says the version is very deceiving, so he reshows it again in slow-mo, and then realizes it actually was a wild attack, and says, what are you going to do about a jive crackers? Bill reviews the miracle on 34th Street. He condemns it for not taking a firm stance on the existence of Santa Claus. He says that Fox, 20th Century Fox, copped out on their responsibility to give a direct uh, opinion. He then checks a book to see if uh, Fox actually was the ones that made the movie, and he mentions that the book was a gift from Santa Claus. He talks about having stayed up late many times to see Santa, but he keeps falling asleep, and he starts to do a prayer blessing his family and the reindeer as he slowly falls asleep. The NBC Dancing End comes out covered in tinsel. It says, if you want to hear the top story, let me out of here. They pull off the box costume, and it's Emily Latella. She calls Dan Aykroyd Mr. Adnoid. She says the news is great, but it's missing one thing, me. Jane explains why she's no longer part of Weekend Update, and Dan pleads with Jane to give her one more chance. Emily comes behind the desk and does a bit about the SST jet, we know it as the Concorde, which she thinks is pronounced st, and she implies that it's a secret. Jane snaps on Emily, and again we have the uh, same ending with the bitch. Edie Amin visited uh, David Berkowitz. <laughs> Amin says David Berkowitz is his kind of guy. And then they end it with uh, a tribute. Elvis, Groucho, and Bing Crosby all died throughout 1977. And Guy Lombardo, famous for ringing in the new year, has also passed away. So they do a, a simulated ball drop with a picture of Guy Lombardo being lowered to the ground. This weekend update is a lot longer than it has been. It's starting to show promise. I did get a few laughs out of this. Again, though, Dan is reading off papers instead of cue cards. Unlike Jane and Chevy, who are kind of, who were reading off the cards and welcoming you in, Dan is kind of out in left field. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed this more than most, certainly longer. I feel like... In this update, I missed I missed a lot of the jokes. Don't really like this, and it was way too long for my liking. The only really part I got a semi-laugh of was when Garrett had to slow down to be like, oh, wow, that actually happened. Jane was good, but it was just too long. Most of what I enjoyed in Weekend Update here was the, uh, the guests. I thought uh, Garrett and Bill and Gilda all did well in their respective parts. I loved Jane losing it and just mm. channeling my energy uh, <laughs> to, to yell at Emily Latella and the, just the nonsense we've had to sit through. Uh, Jane was much more of her usual self here. Yeah, I still don't like Dan doing it. Uh, but, you know, most of the weekend update jokes uh, amongst the anchors were indeed pretty flat. Karis was pretty funny. Though. Yeah. <laughs> I like dude, getting their zooming in, slowing it down. Your thesis was kind of proven, at least with me. 
I kind of perked up with recognition and happiness when I saw Emily there. First of all, it's been a nice break. Second of all, they know they can't continue to beat the formula into the ground. And, <laughs> you know, Jane was us all. I didn't like how there were so many people for just one update. I, I understand it was the Christmas one, but they didn't have to make like five different parts for one update. It was just too much going on. And like before I could like really digest a joke, another one would come in. We now go to Sartsky and Hutch. And this is obviously a parody of Starsky and Hutch. Aykroyd is playing Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, Belushi is Hutch. Uh, two partner cops. One's tough and one's existential. Garrett plays their chief. The episode, of course, is called No Exit. Uh, Belushi's just your standard cop, and Aykroyd makes random philosophical quips as we go. An old friend of Hutch's is holding people hostage. Lorraine plays uh, a prostitute who is meeting with Buck Henry in a hotel room. There's a great gag there. How much? She says, 20 for me, 10 for the room. Buck says, okay, I'll take the room. <laughs> uh, Sartsky and Hutch use her to track down Rusty. Jean-Paul is also using a lot of philosophy to guide Hutch's steps and to also put uh, Rusty's motivations in context. So we go to a bank where Rusty is played by Bill Murray. He has dynamite strapped to him and he holds his mother, played by Miskel Spillman, and his pregnant wife, played by Jane, as his hostages. Rusty was in Nam and he was dealing with PTSD. The bank turned him down when they said he was crazy because he tried to get a loan to buy Vermont. Jean-Paul Sartre's bleak look at death inspires Rusty to blow himself up and then we get a really fake freeze frame. Um, probably one of the first that was done on TV, to be honest. Uh, I thought this was really smart, funny, a great premise. Uh, Dan was excellent in this. It was maybe a tad too long and honestly, I think... This is one of them sketches. We had one last year where I think it went over the live audience's head. I think the way it was shot or maybe the way it was performed, I think this was a lot, probably a lot funnier to a home audience than it would have been to the live audience. Um, or maybe they just didn't like it. I thought it was pretty funny, though. I got a good kick out of it. This one was good. I really liked it. Um, I really liked John Paul and Hutch being like not normal detectives, but like stereotypical detectives. I feel like they could have done like a different quote unquote crime for it, but it still worked out because I didn't really like Rusty being have like PTSD and blowing himself up and stuff. Understood. I feel like that they could have touched on something a little bit less serious. Understood, Dan. That's a point. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Very lofty premise. Dan was great. I did think it was too long. And I really think, you know, sometimes you get it, you know, you can say, oh, that was a little too long. I think it harmed this uh, a little more then maybe something going too long would have. Because, yeah, Dan was great. It was just, I don't know, they did the joke like one or two too many times. You know, it was still really good and everything. And, you know, the the buck part was good. So you, what do you trim? I don't know. Maybe that conversation uh, in the uh, the office there at the station. Did you notice watching it? There was like a, it felt like forever. They just left the camera on Garrett after Sartsky and Hutch left. It felt like. Yes, I did notice. <laughs> and he noticed. He just was like, I'll eat this donut. Because I was starting to think this was going to be a sketch about Garrett eating something. or. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, you haven't gone to college yet, of course. When you get to college, Matt, I don't know if you'll back this statement up. Within your first three weeks of college, you will run into someone who is obsessed with Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah, and I love that they call him JP. JP, yeah. <laughs> oh, JP. And there's there's no conflict. Everyone just accepted that he was there, which I think is what threw me off as being funny. It's like, 
you have this high speaking Frenchman with a bleak outlook on life and he's a cop and everyone just seems to be cool with that, right? He's a seasoned professional and uh, he totally belongs there. He's part of the team. Nobody even raises an eyebrow. They play it very straight. It's well, very well done. We now go to Franken and Davis, and we get to see Al Franken's parents. They're in town, Joe and Phoebe Franken. Al wants to bring them up on stage to pay a tribute to them. So he brings them out on stage, and he sings a generic honor song to them, thanking them for just being wonderful parents and all they've done for him. Joe and Phoebe Franken are just this cute, happy couple who smile as Al sings to them, and just seem they just beam with pride. Al gives them both autographed photos of himself, um, and he says, uh, he asks his mother if she's nervous and she says, uh, she's almost as nervous as she was when, uh, Al was 12 and she got called to go to school because he wet his pants. Al completely snaps and, uh, gets really angry at her for mentioning it. Joe gets mad at him for hollering at his mother. This, uh, descends into a huge family squabble. Tom tries to defuse the situation and Al snaps at him. Al then kicks his parents off stage and literally throws a kick when they're behind the curtain. Then they cut to the title card and come back to Al and Tom with big smiles saying goodnight, everybody. I really enjoyed this and, and, I mean, Al Franken's parents are not performers and I thought they were absolutely excellent. I did not. It's like basically the same thing with the random act of violence with Robert and Helen. I just think that like I don't really like shows that are just gonna be like super happy and cheery and then just instantly go to anger and cursing and stuff like that. All the cursing didn't happen in this one. Not the best Franken and Davis I've seen. I, I just thought it was dumb. Yeah, fine. You get your parents on the show. And yeah, they did fine. I mean, it was semi-funny when he was attacking the curtain, but I mean, I just thought it was stupid. I agree with you. I did not like it. <laughs> Random violence, like a dumb song. Totally agree with Matt here. We now go to E. Buzz Miller's Art Classics. So this is Aykroyd returning as E. Buzz, but it's the debut of uh, Christy Christina, played by Lorraine. So they're hosting a show where they talk about art. They start with... Uh, <laughs> Tidium's Venus of Urbino, Dan refers to as a really nice painting of a broad on a couch. He, he enlarged and blew up a uh, naked woman so he could point out one of the breasts. Then there's a French painting called Love Disarmed with a little naked cherub crawling up an angel. Dan says the French start early and this little guy knows what he's doing and looks like quite the operator. They then go to Manet's Déjeuner sur l'Arbre, which has two fellas in the woods having dinner with a naked woman. Dan says, bon appetit, boys. And then he does a, a different one. I, I don't know. He doesn't identify it. It's a, a set of uh, breaths on a gown, and they imply that it's falsies. This had me in stitches. Um, I'm laughing at, you know, laughing at him, laughing at art. I mean, there's so much you can say about art, and he's just drawn right to the nudity. Um, both Dan and Lorraine were fantastic in this. We know people like Buzz Miller, you know, just two weeks ago, I was walking through a mall and there was a, a mannequin had yet to be dressed and an old man looked at me, pointed at the naked mannequin, said, I wouldn't mind taking that home. I mean, that's Buzz Miller. It's everywhere. I, I got a big kick out of this. It was typical naked jokes. I did not like it at all. It's kind of just like what you would think 12 year olds are just like giggling at old art because I don't know, it's nudity. Dan, you're out of your mind, man. This was really, really good. And Dan Aykroyd does this really well. And I know what you're getting at about the, oh, these are just like stupid jokes about nudity. But they know it's stupid jokes about mm -hmm. nudity. And it's the, the, the joke is that he's a scum. 
scumbag and he's with a porn star prostitute lady who <laughs> she was so good they were both so good i uh keep it with you i i laughed throughout this the joke is that these scumbags have a tv show and, <laughs> yeah. that's and it's a funny one I, I think maybe the difference is, and I correct me if I'm wrong, Daniel, you are actually in junior high, so you probably spend half your day listening to people doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, I got to open mics all over this city. It's no better. <laughs> gonna... We now have a Chiron. This woman showers with enemies. Next sketch. Dan and Jane play a set of parents who are waiting for their son, Jeff, to come home with his girlfriend from college, who he's living with. He brings the girlfriend home, and his girlfriend named Sharon is played by Miskel Spillman. Now, the pair live together, but they aren't getting married yet, and the parents don't want them sharing a bedroom. Ackroyd and Belushi leave. Sharon and Jane have a little bit of chat about what, what Sharon's uh, life goals are. And she's a theater student who plans to have a teaching career to fall back on. That's uh, hitting a little too close to home. As it turns out, uh, Dan and Belushi decide that the two can stay together. They have 30 minutes till dinner, so Miskel and Belushi then go upstairs. I thought this was pretty good. I'm glad they used Miskel Spillman in a proper sketch. Was she excellent? Absolutely not. She was reading off the cue cards. But I think this whole episode, especially this sketch, is supposed to be a novelty. There's no intention to make a brand new star out of this woman. She did exactly what she would expect. Jane, John, and Dan walked her through it like the pros they were. And I mean, sure, Miskel was weak, but I think we saw some real some real chops with uh, Dan, Jane, and John. Showing how, you know, they're, they're pros. They walked her through this, and uh, they, they did really well. Mediocre at best. I didn't really like it, but I didn't really hate it either. It kind of just felt like a middle-of-the-pack kind of sketch. I, I did get a little laugh when Miskel Spillman walked in. I found that a, like the, that the age difference was a little bit funny to me, but not much to say. These latter half sketches aren't too good. This sketch was poor. Not anyone can host. If anyone could host, you wouldn't need to marionette them through a sketch. Uh, the, you know, I know they're not trying to make her a star, but you can still make a friggin' good comedy show. And this was like, like, let's just give her nothing to do filler kind of sketch for the anyone can host winner. I didn't like it. Not anyone can host. Well, I suppose anyone can host, but not anyone can host well, I suppose. Is <laughs> okay, sure. The argument that they sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> we now go to Wino Santa. Gilda plays a little girl who wants a lot of things from Christmas, but Santa, played by Bill Murray, doesn't want to, to give her anything except the trap door, which is basically him opening his legs and she falls down on the floor. Gilda finds that this Santa has has been hiding booze. It's just it's more of that. He gives the trap door. Okay, uh, this is just your typical mean Santa sketch. Probably not as played out back then as it is now. But I even know that this is an old bit that they'd done before. We actually saw a drunk Santa the previous year with Belushi. And uh, I think the wino Santa actually goes back to either uh, Second City or National Lampoon. But this is not the first time that uh, these folks have done this. This was nothing to me. It's another mediocre sketch. Not too good, not too bad. It's okay. I thought it was pretty bad. Pretty bad to me. I, uh, okay, I get it. Gilda plays a good kid. Yeah, otherwise, okay, jerk Santa. That's not the joke. Come on, you're a big network TV show. We now have a Chiron. It's the the woman is unwanted by police. 
We now go to Mr. Mike's Coral Cafe, and it's the return of Michael O'Donohue as Mr. Mike. Mr. Mike runs a uh, a seedy little bar. Lorraine comes in saying she needs a least love bedtime tales. He says she'll get one if she sings the aria from Madam Butterfly. She doesn't want to sing it, but Mr. Mike says the only way she'll get a story. He uh, then gets uh, Cheryl Hardwick who's uh, on the piano, to play the song, and Lorraine sings along while Mr. Mike makes a drink called a soiled kimono. The recipe scrolls up on the screen, followed by the story of the drink. Mike finishes the drink and gives it to Lorraine. Lorraine asks him for the least love bedtime tale, and uh, Mike says she can't have it because she sang lousy. She says he's cruel, and sometimes you have to be cruel, and she says to be kind. He says no, to be even crueler. He then uh, tells her to finish her drink and kicks her out of the bar. This was not overly funny, but I thought it was excellent. It's the kind of dark bits that have really been missing from the last few episodes. I miss some of this darkness. The last few episodes have been have been rather fluffy. Um, so I kind of enjoyed the, the return to this. There's no moral. There's no warm and fuzzy Christmas feeling. Just uh, Mr. Mike at his cruelest. Another mediocre sketch. It was okay. The singing was absolutely horrendous in my to my ears. I've never been to a bar before, so I can't really say much. If I had a bar like that around here, I'd never leave it. I was thinking that, Matt. I thought this was uh, really cool, too. It's a great like, show sketch. It's weird. It's different. And it's the kind of cool, weird thing you just you got used to seeing on late night TV, which is, you know, it's a lost medium uh, seeing weird, Mm -hmm. cool shit on late night TV, because, you know, now you can just see weird, cool shit at two in the afternoon. There's something lost in that, you know, once two o'clock hits. Try to sell me some Time Life CD collections or something, uh, you know. Well, I, I personally I miss I really do with television. Is you know after twelve when they turn the uh, the ad spaces back over to the local stations <laughs> and you get these like you know really weird commercials. It's a it's a lost medium. It is, yeah. How was the sketch though, Matt? You enjoyed that? Yes, yeah. No, I enjoyed it. Mr. Mike was great in it. Lorraine was great in it. Uh, I, I, she sang better than I expected, at least. And uh, yeah, it's just the the whole vibe was cool. It's perfect late night TV. I really enjoyed it. We now go to Radio Radio. Now, this is uh, this is going to be a long one, so we're going to break it down into a couple spots. Elvis Costello and the attractions come out. They start playing less than zero. He stops, and he says there's no reason to do this song here, and they break into Radio Radio. Um, first, guys, let's just talk about the song itself, okay? Um, we'll go into everything else in a second. I really liked this song. I think it's way ahead of its time. Honestly, Radio Radio was a better song than Less Than Zero. The performance was excellent, very frenetic. Um, thought it was fantastic. The music was amazing. I just don't I just don't really know what is so important about this. Apparently it is important, but I have no idea why. But I did like it. Um, it's a good song. Good shit. Uh, it is a better song. Tight, well played, fast paced. This is this is what I want on late night TV. I want cool young shit. I want the hot young record. Dad shouldn't like it. <laughs> but we're dads, Matt. I don't. I, I don't want to like the same music as my dad. So Matt, you know the you know some of the lore behind this. Some, but do go on. So uh, this song, the the change in song, going in and starting with less than zero. Flipping to Radio Radio did get Elvis Costello, quote unquote, banned for 12 years from being on the show. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, What's generally put out there is that Elvis Costello played a song that was critical of media 
And in turn, he was kicked off Saturday Night Live for over a decade. Why the switch? First off, the record company wanted him to play less than zero, which was due to be a uh, to be a single from the album. Costello said that he would played the song at a few spots in the United States and people just didn't seem to get it. He chose to do radio radio. It's a, it's a more upbeat and was getting a better reaction from the audience and certainly more U.S. friendly and more universal in his message. The song is critical of broadcasting and media, which is where the story gets convoluted. So there's two things about this whole thing that are pretty much undisputed. Costello switched songs without telling anyone and the record company was not pleased. Lorne Michaels was pissed, and uh, it, it said that he actually stood next to the camera where Costello could see him raising his middle finger the whole time. Other people have said he was backstage flipping out, which seems very uncharacteristic. Of the two, I certainly believe the, uh, the, the finger raised more than anything else. So there's chatter back and forth that it was the content that pissed off Michaels, and that Costello was sort of peacocking on the Peacock Network. But if we look at what we know about the situation and what, what's available out there, I think he was pissed because Costello made a significant change without telling anyone. That in any context has never been cool with Lauren Michaels. He's got a show to time and and while they've really kind of over the years fostered a, the impression that anything can happen because it's live, even to this day, this show is meticulously timed because it's live. So I think he had every right to be angry with Costello about changing it because he has he has time cues you know and, and uh, certainly doesn't want a precedent being set here even five seconds can throw the show off so i don't know let's look at it from lauren's defense here one week before he's looking at a show with an unknown host who's never performed and the sex pistols sex pistols back out and uh, suddenly we have you know elvis costello chances of the show running off the rails with the sex pistols and, a, and an untrained unexperienced host are extremely high. So I'm thinking at this point, you know, Lauren's sitting backstage. He's like, okay, Sex Pistols back out. Costello's first set went well. This old lady's, you know, doing a passable job. He's probably just getting ready to relax. And all of a sudden, Costello changes the song on him. Um, Ten minutes before he's done for Christmas at that. That's interesting. Um, I did not know that. I did not know that is why costello was not allowed to come back for 12 years why didn't you just like cut him off like like the screen that he was on just to not like show that anymore why couldn't show. they why couldn't they like change the camera they still had to keep the time if he was going long he probably would have cut him okay that makes sense thank you keith i'm with lauren on this one i'd have been furious you do have a live show yeah. you're trying to keep it timed You've got, you know, everything down. You've done dress rehearsal. You've been over this. And, you know, again, you're on a big, big network TV show here. And, uh, you got to run a tight ship. So I'd have been furious as well. The, the song, mm -hmm. like, who gives a shit about the song? Uh, I do, again, I don't think it was. I think I agree that it was less about the content. I mean, the Sex Pistols, you know, what are the chances that they go out there and just do a clean set? Small. They're small. Uh, yeah. You know, this this would have been a huge American television audience for them. They would have fucked around. And, yeah. you know, so for this to happen, in a way, you got off probably lucky. You probably got off lucky that Elvis Costello just wanted to play a slightly better song. Count your blessings. But also, I'd be mad. If there's a bad guy in this story, it's the record company. Like, let the artist choose what song he's going to play. Yeah, I agree. If you look at it now, I mean, here we are many years later. The record company winds up with two hits instead of one. 
Fences are mended and Elvis Costello comes back, even recreates this on the 25th anniversary with the Beastie Boys. And and we get a pretty historic, uh, pretty historic moment in, in live television. Good tune. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I liked it, actually. So we now have the good nights. Uh, Spillman comes out dressed very cutely as Mrs. Claus. She says she's had the best time of her life and she thanks her granddaughter, who she brings up on stage. The cast enters. Bill Murray's still dressed as Santa. Joe and Phoebe Franken are there for the goodbyes. Um, Don Pardo notes that next week, or New Year's Eve, uh, Saturday Night Live will be replaying their New Orleans special, which is shocking to me because I thought it only played the once. Um, either way, the good nights uh, seem very festive and jolly. The ratings, rating the host. So Spillman, this is a one-off novelty. She was charming, and she was as good as she could be. As a matter of fact, I thought she was actually better than uh, than what I had expected. And certainly better than a few of the other people that have actually hosted who who were not, you know, novelties like the uh, sports folk or some of the politicos. It's an interesting thing because the audience was really rooting for her throughout. And it seems like the cast was too. They certainly didn't leave her floundering up there. She was not a top tier host. And uh, she was, most importantly, she was used properly. She was used excellently. She was she had minders in every scene. And uh, I thought uh, a good outing for Mrs. Spillman. Uh, I still think that she did really well with some, some certain sketches. And I feel like that she did way, 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 way better than I was expecting. Not everyone can host. They're wrong. Uh, and it's not just, you're right, it's not just, it's not just a, your average German grandma with questionable history that lives down the lane. It, you know, it's also the politicos. It's also Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader can't host, and Mrs. Spielman can't host either. She's got something in common with Ralph Nader. This was a poor idea. Was she better than Nader, Matt? Oh, shit. You know, that's tough because Nader wasn't sent out there with minders. Uh, he was actually, you mm. know, they not that the writing on that episode was great. Man, I hated that episode. Um, was she better than yeah. Nader? No, but, you know, they're, they're all they're in the same circle of Dante's Inferno in that regard. Like, it's there's not a better here <laughs> it's like what would you rather your yeah. nipple ripped off or your earlobe you're like well it's gonna suck so the music i thought it was fantastic nice change from the norm and i think the last couple of weeks are showing that they're they're spreading their wings a little bit costello was great tons of energy from him in the band his songs have meaning and this is a good precursor to where the music will eventually go for a time before they pull it back and then it goes back again the music will be up and down all even without the controversy, uh, I think this would have been a historic night anyway, musically. It still would be, for me, I think, one of the more memorable performances of the early years. Yeah, I agree with you. Like I said, I really liked the background of the uh, like band garage vibe. Elvis Costello is amazing. I've listened to a couple of his songs before. Really, really, really good tonight. Really saved some bad parts of the episode. You're right, Keith. The, uh, you know, the, this was going to be an event either way. I, I, I'm still, you know, I can't help but wonder what could have been. You know, what we got is cool. We got two really good songs, uh, something that we get to remember forever. We would have remembered it forever either way. But what do I know? Maybe the Sex Pistols show up drunk pieces of shit and just slouch their way through their songs and do nothing. You know, that, that would have been a pretty big middle finger itself. You can't second guess. What we what we got is good. Good songs. 
good, young, energetic performer. So, worst of the night, fellas? Franken and Davis. I didn't really like it. Robert and Helen were very close, but I think Franken and Davis was just a worse version of that. It came out of nowhere. We already had a sketch like it with the weird, out-of-nowhere, random act of violence. I just don't think it fit out well, and I hope, I hope for the next couple episodes of franken and davis does better for an episode i feel like i kind of liked there was a lot of shit to sit through uh but my my shit of the night was that i, I don't know what to call it that one where uh, he brings home grandma as his girlfriend they're like oh let us sleep upstairs and they're like well i don't know and it was just it's just so stupid it was such a waste of time uh, and it was just there to fill that old lady and give her something to do it was not anyone can host that sketch sucked amongst all the suck i hated that gift of the magi thing too uh but whatever uh this this was worse this bring bring home my old lady as the date sketch and snl archive calls that sketch girlfriend (laughs) 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 i uh i went with uh why no santa the mean santa thing is played out and it probably was then we did see a drunk santa last year with belushi Gilda and Bill were fine, but there was no script there at all. What's the best sketch of the night? My favorite is uh, art history uh, or art classics, whatever the hell it was called with Dan and Lorraine. I thought that that's just just one of my favorites. They were both so good. The sleaze factor was at the top. Didion. Daniel, what's your pick? I think I'm going to go with Meat Wagon, but Detective is very, very close. I think the only thing that's keeping uh, Sartsky and Hutch from being better than Meat Wagon is that they made a crime more of a serious problem with PTSD mm-hmm. and uh, Nom. But I think Meat Wagon just was pretty cheery, pretty funny, and there's like, there's nothing, you can't go wrong with Meat Wagon. And I'm with you, Matt. It's definitely the art classics. I had a harder time picking. But uh, I uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. I thought the performances were great. And they actually brought me to their level, giggling at the same stuff they were. Who was your star of the night? This one was also very hard. But I think I might have to go with Ackroyd here. He did very well in some of them. And uh, Jean-Paul was probably the one that won it over for me. He did a really well, he did a very good impression. And I just really, really liked it. This is pretty tough for me. I really like. Uh, a lot from a lot of people tonight from the not ready for prime time players i guess ultimately though uh for for standout performances as jp and the scumbag i also have to go with dan Aykroyd. you know there was a lot of people made me laugh tonight gosh those two sketches he really nailed it This was a hard one, and it was between Dan and Lorraine for me. Yeah, that was my other one, too. Yeah, see, I went with Lorraine, and uh, she was all over the show, and she was very different this time. It's a great evening for her, and uh, it was a good evening for Dan as well, don't get me wrong, but uh, we got to see a lot of the versatility from Lorraine. I haven't seen much of this year, so I... Uh, I went with her. I thought she was absolutely fantastic tonight. So overall, I think this was a real cool night of TV. Mrs. Spillman was fine. We got a little bit of Buck Henry. Most of the sketches were strong and very different from each other. You know, the Mr. Mike sketch, Sartsky and Hutch, Meat Wagon, the cold open, the art uh, bit. The music was stellar. Update was better than it has been. 
this was a really strong ensemble night too, where everybody had their moment to shine. And it seemed almost, I don't know, based on the stylistic approaches to the sketch, it looks like even maybe the writers had a uh, a good night where everybody got uh, featured throughout. To me, even the weak stuff had redeemable factors. There was nothing that was completely shit tonight. What's missing for me was the truly dynamite sketch that was so funny and so smart. Um, that's like a, a shoe in for best sketch of the year. I didn't seem like I got that one. And while I enjoyed Spillman, I didn't miss the presence of a strong host. And especially with these Chris with a Christmas episode, this is the first one we don't have Candace Bergen, and she's uh, anchored those Christmas shows so well. But all things considered, I really, really enjoyed this show. And uh, I might surprise you, lads, but I'm giving this one an 8 out of 10. I agree with Keith on the fact that, like, everybody kind of had their moment to shine. But I did not like a lot of these. Some of these were just terrible. The latter half, update and later, just really sucked for me. I did not, I didn't like anything. For this one, I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of 10. All right, guys, let's cool it a second. Okay, let's let's be reasonable here, you you crazy fellas. Ah, uh, that was a good cold open about this. So not anybody can host. Yeah, okay, we know, but it's a, a good musical guest, and the whole cast is on point. An eight? Ah, uh, you're out of your mind with an eight, but a four point five. <laughs> ah, you're you're. Come on, dude. Uh, there, there's some dregs. I don't agree with either of you. Uh, I'm going to land very much in the <laughs> middle of this uh, because there was some really good stuff and there was some really good. Dan was great and uh, Lorraine was great, as we mentioned, and the music was cool and memorable. And yeah, sure, not everyone can host. But it's not ah, it's not great either, though, because a lot of it was lazy. But maybe that's not everybody's fault. And they really blew the, the reveal on the host. That was a whole thing. Good gosh. That Jean, the JP sketch was a bit long. As I talk it out, as I think it out, whew, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and land on a six for this episode. Six. We are all over the map here. Holy jumpins. With my, uh, oddly enough, Matt, something funny happens here. With my eight, Matt's six, and Dan's 4.5, we wind up with a 6.2. The fine folks over at the IMDb gave it a 7.7, which is 1.5 higher than what we picked, what? landing perfectly on our old exchange Wonderful. rate. Wonderful. How funny is that? So I actually rated this higher than the IMDb, certainly higher than you two guys. According to the Internet Movie Database users, this finishes fourth of the third season, fourth best episode, 144th um, of all episodes to date. I'm surprised how far across the uh, how far across the board we actually are. With this one being a special episode, Matt, uh, are you surprised they never did the anyone can host it again? No, because not anyone can host. And yep. I think they're like, well, we got away with that. <laughs> I think they should have done it again. Uh, I think I think Miskel Spielman did pretty well. Well, I am surprised, actually. It's 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 funny that uh, they didn't do it again. It would have been nice if they had. Uh, but I mean, this was an early an early gimmick that maybe logistically was more of a nightmare than what we actually saw on screen. Right. Surely. And again, like I said, yeah. I bet you they feel like they got away with something. All right. Um, so, Daniel, thank you very much. It's a different different way of doing things with you in tonight. And hopefully you'll be back over the years to uh, to regale us again and to uh, to underrate the show. <laughs> 
hopefully. Um, it's it's been a pleasure being here, Matt and Keith. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and we'll uh, we'll see you again down the line. I hope. Yeah, I'll see you later then. Thanks, Daniel. You got to take over the show when we die. So, Matt, do you know who the host is next time? Yeah, they mentioned during the credits, Steve Martin. Yeah, Steve Martin, along with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, they'll be ringing in 1978 for us. Do you want an epilogue on Miss Spillman? <laughs> is she still with us? She, she, she'd be 130. <laughs> no, Mrs. Miss Spillman actually passed away in 1992. She remained a devout fan of the show. And uh, actually really, really enjoyed uh, Dana Carvey, um, but passed away at the age of 94. So a uh, nice long life for Miss Spillman. And oddly that, enough, she actually outlives Belushi and Gilda. Oh, that's depressing. Yeah. Uh, but it's cute that she really liked Dana Carvey. Me too. Yeah, I think so. I, she probably saw a lot of her friends in the church lady, maybe. Yes. So Matt and I will be back in about a week. But until then, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here in SN Hill. <laughs>